Welcome to the Westside Barbell Podcast. Today we're joined with JJ and the Strong A crew. We got Seth and John, and of course Louis Simmons. Uh, JJ, I want to start us over with you, and if you give us a, a bio about you, all your staff. Um, I'm not going to name everyone's name because I'm going to forget them. Just introduce yourselves, and um, then how the system has affected the way you you guys uh, train your athletes. Absolutely. Uh, so uh, I was an athlete, obviously, most of my life, and uh, I was kind of considered myself not a genetic freak, and I was always on a search for a system that kind of could equalize us and um, you know, those of us that weren't genetic freaks. And when we brought on our new head strength coach, Josh Wade, he's sitting right next to me, uh, he was the first one to point that out. He's like, this is the genetic equalizer. And uh, once we started this system, we rolled it out to our athletes. Uh, we now have a population of 170 athletes that we use this system with. Every one of them uses the conjugate system. Um, and we have had unbelievable results with them in the overhead population. Almost 92% of our athletes are baseball players. <clears throat> and uh, we do max efforts. We do dynamic efforts. We do everything um, you know, that, that, is, that is taught in the system. And at first, it blows people's mind and it scares them. But then once they see the results, it's unbelievable. So you know, with me today, I brought uh, my head coach, uh, strength coach, Josh Wade, uh, two of my athletes and uh, interns, Scott Hyman and uh, Matt Fowler, and then my media intern and uh, my original project over there, Robert Ryerson. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, um. yeah absolutely. Uh, a lot of the same things, man. Uh, was introduced to Conjugate, uh, 16 years old. Wish I would have found it earlier. Uh, tough thing, I went off to college, you know, and could only train Conjugate in the summers. You know, I'd go get into the linear, you know, bullshit, you know, that you see in college football programs. Played football, and like he was saying, uh, it's an equalizer. You know, I had decent talent, but uh, you know, being introduced to the conjugate system, it just totally bridged the gap for me to guys that were ahead of me on the field, and just totally changed everything. And then as far as coaching, I see that change now with athletes. You know, we're working uh, mostly baseball players. You know. Kids that are frustrated, uh, getting injured, just not getting the success that they want. They come in, within a month, they have these increases that JJ will go over with their pitching velocity, their exit velocity, and they're not getting hurt anymore. They're not in pain. And when I see this, um, especially with high school athletes that were just average guys and all of a sudden they're getting you know looks from major colleges, I mean, that's everything I need. You know that. You know, just means the world that I could play a small part in making a change for them. So, you know, once once I, you know, became a part of the team with JJ, you know, it was, it was like it was just meant to be, you know, helping, helping a lot of these kids. Yeah, I mean, it's unbelievable. I mean, we've had, especially the last six weeks, and when he really, really took over program, we got – we. You know, I feel like we evolve in the system every 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 wave. We run our three week waves. Every wave, we, we get we get deeper into what you guys do and what you teach. And um, you know, now we're getting crazy, just doing things I would never would have imagined us doing on our on our max effort movements. Just coming up with insane shit. And mm -hmm. and I mean, we've got our average our average skill position baseball players putting on an 11 pounds of skeletal mass uh, in 12 weeks. These are kids; they're still growing, so you know those numbers are a little bit skewed. But it's the first time they've touched real weights in a real system. Um, they're putting on, or they're taking off two and a half tenths on average. They're home to first base times, eight miles an hour up on off tee exit velo, uh, four to seven miles an hour throwing velocity, um, and and you know deadlifts and squats. Deadlifts are averaging 65 pounds in that 12 weeks, and squat 55 pounds. It's it's pretty unbelievable. Yeah, absolutely. And another thing, they'll come, 
they'll come say, Coach, man, I feel, you know, ten times better just chasing down walls in the outfield or, you know, in the infield, you know, lateral change of direction. We do no, no change, change of direction. direction work, you know. So using those, you know, laterally driven movements like, you know, sumo deads, ultra-wide box squats, and, and to hear that coming from them, you know, it, it's just amazing. And then, you know, the funny thing is, is their coaches see this too, and then a lot of them won't want their guys to come <laughs> back to us, which is mind-blowing to me. So it's, it's pretty crazy. I mean, actually, I didn't get a chance to talk with you about this, Tom, before, before we got started. But as of today, we actually have an opportunity. I won't, I won't name the coach uh, live on here. But the coach texted me and wants us to come up and figure out how to implement this system at a, at a decently respected co uh, university for his baseball guys. We took a kid that he clocked in October, uh, topping out at 84 and uh, averaging 82. He's now averaging 89. Man. And he was just blown, blown away. How the fuck did you do this? You know, how, how are you guys doing this? Um, so obviously that's something that, you know, was a little bit above our pay grade. We need you, you guys help on that. But it's just to give the idea, I think that we're affecting enough athletes with the system. We've found a way to implement it across the board, um, you know, that there's kids that are spidering out into this, into this uh, the sport that is extremely behind in strength conditioning. And I say that without, without pause and, and, you know, without being sorry about it, because it's, it's a fucking joke what these guys are doing with their kids. They come to us and it's unbelievable, you know. So it's, uh, we got some things that we want to go over. Um, <clears throat> I know Lou has some questions for us too, but, you know, one of the big things for us is, you know, we, we do max effort bench with our baseball players. And I explained to them, like, the pec, the, you know, the pec is, is a primary adductor for that humerus. And, you know, for those of you guys listening, basically if you're a sidearm thrower, a submarine thrower, an overhead thrower, if your pec is not strong enough to close that arm, there's no throw happening. So, you, you know, you being afraid to, 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 to develop your athletes in a, in, a, in a bench, which should be full range of motion with proper form, if your shoulders aren't healthy enough to do that, they're not fucking healthy enough to throw a ball 90 mile an hour overhead. You know, so it's, you know, that's one of the things we learned from this system. I mean, it, it's, and you had just said it, Lou, you should be, be able to perform in all ranges. You know, your shoulder's designed to move through all ranges. And I think we had a question uh, for John about that too, and, and a little bit about, you know, range of motion with the shoulders and, and, and misconceptions that people have there. So. For when you get, what's the biggest obstacle you've had to overcome? Because we get it, but from another point of view with coaches, with, parents with athletes what are the biggest obstacles you have to you have to get through before you have them sold and that this system is actually going to work for baseball um so we we take we basically what we do is we do an interview process whether we will actually work with the athlete or not i spend three hours with them um separated between days before we even decide if we're going to take them and we make them go through a parent athlete interview and I basically explained to them the conjugate system. I, you know, I put together a chart um, from what I've learned over the years and, and especially this last recent year. Um, and it basically breaks down the conjugate system. And, and what I do is I, I take them through first and explain to them what they've been doing with their coaches, you know, or maybe not even been doing, but the basically linear block periodization. Um, and I explain to them and, and take them through the concepts of, of human physiology, biomechanics, how the body actually functions in these ranges. and and really what I do is start to explain to them the central nervous system and the fact that, you know, baseball is not a, is not an aerobic sport in any, any capacity. You know, we, what the first thing I get to is the difference between our max efforts and the difference between, you know, what they would do in a, in a six week or eight week 
you know, block in the periodization system where they're, they're doing five by fives, three by fives. Uh, you know, we're doing two doubles and three singles with our baseball kids, and we'll do it a day before a game, 24 hours before. We do manual regeneration the very next day with stuff that we've learned from John and, and you know, some body tempering. Their central nervous system activated. Right, exactly. And we learned that from you guys when you talked about Ben Johnson taking max effort benches the day before his sprinting. And every day, I mean, I got, a, I got 13-year-old kids that come in, Coach, I hit 11 home runs in a tournament this weekend. Yeah. So the biggest, the biggest obstacle, I know that got a little bit long-winded, but the biggest obstacle is really educating these parents and then, and then combating the misconceptions in the baseball community. What we explain to them is, look, we're studying to become biomechanics experts and, and, and experts on the human physiology and the central nervous system, how the body regenerates. I'm not going to sit there and tell you that I can t teach you how to throw a ball, right? That's the job of your coach, your, your sports coach, right? Our job is to get you cock strong like and explosive and that's that probably being the biggest obstacle is the position coaches constantly hammering you know all oh, lifting weights you know that'll ruin you yet they come into us injured and leave healthy yeah. but you know too much sport specific absolutely, absolutely. You need general and specific yeah they, i know it's hard to get through people's head you talk yeah. about they all train linear periodization is is basically as the weights go up the volume goes down so you're looking yeah. for a dead end street you're going absolutely. to get hurt you have no base, and when you do the block, when you leave a block, it's actually detraining. Absolutely, yeah. So, and I don't understand why people don't read a book. All the coaches listen to this podcast. I tell them try to read a book. They just bought one book: Science of Sports Training. Actually, Absolutely. read a book. They might learn something. Absolutely. One of the things that blew us away is, it, you know, and to think about it, and it's, you know, if you, it, I, they'll never take a day off of swinging a fucking bat. They'll never take a day off of throwing the ball. Not once. Why? Because, oh, because the body loses the adaptations. You know, your central nervous system downgrades. You can't. You know, the guys who are actually a little bit more science-based in this, right? So you, you, you completely walk away from max strength for an entire season. What the fuck, what the fuck do you think is happening? You know, and that's, and I, that frustrates me. I get, I get very, very, like, emotional when it gets to this stuff because it's like you, you have some of the same concepts. If you could just put your sport into what we're doing and understand that it doesn't have to look like what you're doing in the field, but we make a transfer from, you know, joint angle, from the ranges that we put them in. I mean, and it's, it's unbelievable. So they're locked in a law of accommodation and they don't know it. Absolutely. And, and the results get worse and worse and worse. That's why a lot of young ball players look like great careers peak out too soon. Absolutely. Get Never get any better. I that's, recall yeah. reading years ago, catchers, they were like trying to get catchers yeah. at 13 years yeah, old. Yeah, absolutely. And then they found out by 18, they, didn't, they weren't any better. Yeah. So, they, you know, someone yeah. has to develop an athlete. We have it right now. We have quite – we have – there's a few kids, uh, uh, a couple specifically that are, you know, being pretty heavily drafted. You know, they're 16, 17 years old because they're reaching, they've reached their, you know, genetic peak, I guess, if you want to call it that. And and but they shelf, they they shelved off, they they roof, they hit a roof, they hit that plateau. And now since they've come here, it's just been unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, we have kids that were heavily drafted as college athletes. Now they're looking at, you know, you got re legit scouts that are talking one to three million dollars, and it's been it, this yeah. is over a summer. I mean, it, it, and, and the difference, the only difference has been they play less baseball and they lift more. And the kids are totally bought in oh, after they see these results. I mean, it's just totally loyal to We have, we have parents that are, like, chomping at the bit just to listen to this because they know that this yeah. is happening. And then they go back to their supervisors, uh, which that's, are actually called coaches. Yeah. That's Absolutely. the problem. Mm -hmm. How, the worst yeah. kid and the best kid the same, and you can never do that. You cannot have exactly. bad children and good children together. Uh -huh. The bad ones always be bad, and the good ones can go bad. Right. Absolutely. I think a big thing, too, that people don't realize is how fast the central nervous system can adapt or wants to get better. 
especially when you do max effort as a stimulus. And we've seen it here. We've had athletes three weeks is what we say. If you're if you're a pretty good athlete in three weeks, you're going to notice a huge difference. Mm -hmm. Some people the next workout, people don't realize that that if you work out, you can get better before your next workout. Absolutely. And that's what the, yeah. the central nervous system. That's what it, that's what it does. But people yeah. don't know what it is. They have no idea. I mean, all your methods you're using is what we use. It's all scientifically based. It's not called the Nebraska system. Yeah. Very high stakes. No. Yeah. Because there is no such thing. Yeah. And I mean, you got to go by science. And that's what changed me in 1982. Uh, I was into this training and for a year, and I was making great progress. And I finally figured out what I lacked before. It was science, applying science. Absolutely. I, I mean, I, I can tell you from an injury standpoint, I, I tore my pec off, uh, uh, kind of messing around, deviating a little bit, because I always considered myself a decent bencher. Um, I benched 415 a uh, year out of high school, and then I was messing around. On my 11th set, I tore, tore my uh, sternocostal head out of complete volusion from the humerus. Um, this is October 31st, and I used this system things that you used, uh, high, you know, high rep dumbbells, OKE bar, oscillating connect energy, you know, chaos kettlebells. Um, and basically, uh, now, you know, I, I back up to about 305, and it's not even been a year. And it, it's, but I had no surgery, nothing. I didn't go to a physical therapist. I did everything myself following your system. And it, like, he brought, he brought it up. He fixed his shoulder doing the same thing. The answer is always Answer's in the weight room. Always in the weight room. 100%. And it, it's. Majashi said to do nothing is worthless in battle. Absolutely. And Absolutely. a surgeon always wants you to do nothing for you, which mm -hmm. was a retarded amount. And other yeah. kids are getting concussions at six years old. He's dealt They're with afraid that to train both ends of the spine. Yeah. Yeah. Back and they're yeah. back. Yeah. It's just amazed to me because they're uninformed. I've always said, how come I'm not the football coach at High State? I have no experience. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> so how come I don't get it? But you got a weight coach that has no experience, but he's the weight coach. No. Mm -hmm. So I just something that has dumbfounded me all my life. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, it, it's uh, we we uh, as soon as we tell people that they're gonna do max efforts, it's like, what the what do you mean max effort? And I explain it to them, and then you know we break down the math, we do the math, you know, we show them the math, and it's you, know, you can't argue with it. There's there's less filament sliding. There's no you know there's 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 less there's less tension. I mean, or excuse me, there's less. Uh, less constant time under tension is just less volume, you know? And, and when we're dealing with injuries where baseball is like 90% overuse injury, you know, we try to explain to them, well, our max effort system is, is far less than what you're gonna do in any other weight system where you're doing multiple sets of eight, tw 10, 12 repetitions in, in compound movements where your kids don't have, they don't have an idea of where their, their you know, kinetic breakdowns are. We put them in for, for a single, and we figure out, okay, this is where our dysfunction is. Now we can go attack the hip, or we can go attack the hamstrings, or we can go attack the low back. Well, you get to swing one time at a time, right? Yeah, and then you or sit down. one ball at a time. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing. You know, and, and if, you're, if you're, let's say you're a big hitter. Like, we got a big hitter that's really made some incredible improvement. I think he's, he was number one at perfect game in Lakewood, which is like, you know, the, the king of baseball now for, for travel and, and recruitment and such. Um, his exit velocity was 102.5 off the tee, I think. And yeah. that was up like six miles an hour, and that was 12 weeks before. And the kid, the, the major correlation, his deadlift went up 100 pounds and his squat went up 100 pounds in those 12 weeks. Um, and it's, it's, again, he, he understood the fact that I'm going up and I'm going to hit the ball three times. I'm going to take three swings. And I'm, it, by three swings, if I'm not on base or already walking home, my time's over, I'm going to go sit back on the bench. Like, and that's, 
you know, they're starting to understand that. But then I'll still have a coach that comes in and he doesn't look the part, right? He doesn't look like an athlete. Well, we want to lose 40 pounds. I want you to take 40 pounds off this kid. Well, if I take 40 pounds off this kid, momentum impulse says he's not going to be able to hit that bar as far. You know, but that's always just down to me. I want my team fast, but I gotta make them lose weight. I want my team fast. I want to gain them. Game oh, shit. The first person to gain me for NFL Combine was from Oklahoma State. He was six five. He weighed two ninety five. I have got him thirteen weeks. He ran five four forty. He said, "Knock the tenth off a play because he can play football." I have twenty one days to go to Combine. He weighed three hundred and eight pounds. And he ran five one forty. Yeah, and it's a joke to do this. And how, and how much did you have him run? None. <laughs> None. <laughs> like Tommy, we had some guys down from Florida. Because people always look at me like they're going, this guy's lying. The last guy I had, tied in from o- OU, Ohio University, six foot four, 290, 292. He ran a 5'140. Had Johnny Parker, he's got four Super Bowl rings. And he said, if you knock a tip off, he'll make a lot of money. And Johnny said, I'll play both ways and make a lot of money. I had him two months. He ran 4'7. Unbelievable. And with 8998 and long jump. Unbelievable. I mean, it's, it's so simple, it's ridiculous. Well, like I said, you got to apply science. Well, I think you're going to ask us one of your questions. You know, what do we do for speed? Oh, yeah, I wanted to ask that. Because I'm a firm believer you don't have to run. Because we had a football team, coaches right now. Mm-hmm. And the Andrews almost four tenths on the whole team. Yep. They quit running. They quit running. And, uh, yeah, I wanted to ask, what do you think about I mean, so many of them do so much running. To me, a chicken with his head chopped off can run. There's no skill to running. Absolutely. But what do you what do you say to that? Absolutely. Well, I mean, I'll start on this. I'll let Wade finish up. But, I mean, the, I, I live and die by the sled. Our kids start the, every day that they walk in our weight room, they, they have sleds. Actually, we just bought five more sleds. We've got ten sleds now that are going to be preloaded with weight. That's what we do every day to get our kids prepped. Um, and we do different variations of sled work, some specialized uh, sled work for the rotation stuff. But for speed, it's standing straight up, what, you know, either the belt around the waist or reaching, bending over yeah. through, through your legs. Heel to, heel to toe. Heel to toe. Heel to toe, pulling back hamstring. on the ground. Put, to putting force into the ground. Absolutely. It's not running, is it? And we've had, yeah, we've had tons of success. And, uh, you know, these guys, baseball players, got to get their 60 time down, kind of like the 40 with the – uh, with football, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, I think it's from all the the Absolutely. body weight, you know, sled walks we've done. Yeah, I mean, we're averaging three to four tenths on our sixties, and it's it's the sled work. I worked with the National Decathlon Champ. I worked with bobsledders. Uh, I worked with track girls, and we found, I mean, on, on blacktop by using um, 135 pounds, the girls weighed about 140, 45. They had their fastest time for 60 uh, meters than they did with one plate. Because again, it goes back to the force velocity curve. They can't produce. Have to apply more force. You only so, weigh so much, you're so strong, you produce so much no, force. Absolutely. How can you produce greater force by pulling heavier weight? Absolutely. At some point, it's too heavy. No. But I've done it over and over and over. I, I think with that, I believe, to, you know, some I had I had some questions there originally when I first started learning about the difference, you know, in in real speed training. And I should just add, 11 years ago, uh, when I first got into this stuff. I, I was with the Nike Spar program, and, and, and you know, I did the, uh, the ladder drills and the speed drills and, and, you know, that stuff that makes you really good at Dance Dance Revolution. And um, I, kept, I kept getting pissed off because I couldn't figure out how I got these championship athletes or championship-level athletes is just saying getting faster. And then I wondered, I looked back, and I'm like, well, I got, when I got strong as shit, you know, my, my 40 time dropped, you know, and I got more explosive. I jumped higher. And it started to make sense. And, you know, I think what it is is when you're walking the sled, right, it isolates, it isolates the hamstring in the same chain, basically the same chain that happens when you're, when you're, you know, sprinting. But it makes it so that you're really focusing on that hamstring and, you know, getting that, getting that hip extension as you pull through. But when you figure out that, okay, when I walk the sled, 
you'll see the difference. You'll see what Lou's talking about when he says that you must apply more force when you walk with weight. It doesn't make sense. Okay, well, if I, if I walk with less weight, I should be able to walk faster. You'll see what you, all I can say is you got to try it. Put more weight on the sled and walk with it because you have to walk harder. You have to put more contact in the ground and you'll find that you walk faster. And this is exactly why javelin throwers don't lift the same amount of weights that a shot putter throws. Mm -hmm. You know, a shot putter lifts, has to lift heavy weights. Absolutely. Because of the implement and so forth. How do you guys keep your athletes strong throughout the season? Okay, so um, this, this comes to, this is something that people really get on me about, but I, you can talk to our parents and our, and our kids. It, it speaks for itself. I'm very, very big on continuing the max effort work during season. Um, and I know that, you know, I, I've listened to you guys. You guys, basically on dynamic effort days, you can use your volume to, to, to have maintenance, you know, keep strength. For us, and what we've noticed is we keep our kids on fire switching to isometric variations. So we'll put them in, in uh, uh, three to four different ranges um, and do max effort pulls. Uh, from two to three seconds, and then uh, we'll do you know our jumps right after that, and then light specialized, and we do that anywhere from 48 to 24 hours before a game, um, and it keeps them strong as shit. I mean, it keeps yeah. them. Are you doing this with arm motion? Absolutely. Yeah, I did the same thing with two track girls. Every time we ran faster. Absolutely. Isometrics, they ran faster every time. It's. A, I mean, that's that's been huge. And then when I and baseball is also one of these sports where you'll get a you'll get a out of the blue you'll get a text from a parent. Hey, uh, you know, so and so has a has a has a tournament, big big tournament, big showcase. We're going a coach college coach. So my kids are freaking out. Oh my god, what am I gonna do? Super simple. We bring them in. We do we do like three to four different levels of of a, of a ISO rack pull. Just absolutely, you know, blast into the freaking pins and hold that shit for two to three seconds. Just light them up, light them up, light them up. Do their jumps. A little bit of specialized. Then they go with Christy, who does all of our regenerative stuff, and, and she f pretty much follows you. And, and then he does a lot of FRC. J Josh does a lot of, like, that's what he started doing with the guy. What, what's his name? Uh, Moses, Moses Bernard. Moses Bernard. Tampa. Um, and, and he's been implementing that with her, trying to teach her what he's learning in that, in that range and stuff. And those two things combined, I mean, the, our kids are like, you can't beat them. They have the best showcases of their lives. Um, and then, you know, what we try to do is position our dynamic effort day uh, during season, basically where they will they have that gap to a little bit of recovery because it is more volume. Um, and, you know, we, we basically combine. So we'll do, uh, we'll do both their max efforts. We'll do an upper and lower max effort together and then an upper and lower dynamic effort together. And then we have a regeneration day because a lot of times all we can do is get a kid two to three times during the week um, when they're in season. But it seems to maintain them. And actually, we, we kids are still breaking records. You know, uh, isometrics are very strange at the time that you cover quickly. And John, uh, our ART guy, mentioned to me that uh, when isometric contraction, you're lengthening or shortening, of course, so there's not much inflammation. Exactly. Our kids don't get sore from it. You always want to get the most out of training. Don't let it get the most out of you. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean that that's been huge for us. So so basically so you do mostly general exercise. You you leave the coach to the sport specific. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, one the now mm -hmm. the one thing that we do do and, and this is what we tell people, basically we break down what they do, um, and we do general exercise for specific ranges. So we try to mimic the range that they'll perform in, right? So we'll look at like how deep is the squat or you know, how deep is are the is the knee flexion and the and the, and the hip hinge when it, on a specific batter, right? So you work by law of the situation. Yeah, absolutely. Great. So then we'll put them into a block pull. Uh, and, and most of our baseball guys, our hitters really seem to develop uh, uh, from two inch sumo, uh, two inch depth, excuse me, not deficit, two inch block pulls. And then our, our pitchers really, really benefit from four inch block pulls. And I think it has to do with, you know, where that, where that hip change happens. Interesting. Um, 
and that that has been a very bit we have a direct correlation with those um for sure and then uh everything else is generalized so i try to tell people general and and specific exercises have no ill effect on technique timing and coordination that's exactly what and they don't them. spend enough time on it absolutely that's what makes a man you know how does a man mature a boy mature into a man become stronger just through adaptation of, of life itself absolutely um, I got another, you know, you, you mentioned the sleds because basically running is two things. Ground force, greater ground force and minimal ground contact. That's exactly what sleds can do for you. Absolutely. Yeah, and hopefully you know how to run. Because 90% of effort to run um, uh, horizontally, 90% is to overcome gravity. vertical. Absolutely. Only 10% horizontal. Mm -hmm. A lot of people don't understand that. Absolutely. We, we, we teach it like you're, you're, basically, you're basically jumping from foot to foot. You're falling every time. That's right. You know, and if you're in the correct positioning, uh, which the sleds do, you know, the sleds allow us to make that athlete not only, you know, use the right, basically, uh, the right chain, but it also makes them perform at the correct angle if they're using the right amount of weights, you know, and you can load, you can load the correct muscles and the correct ranges at the, you know, and it's unbelievable. I've always called sled dragging the Tai Chi of weight training because it's a slow motion. It's hard to do mm -hmm. something slow. It yeah. is. To be fast, you must, you must first be, be slow. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And... Jet Lee. Yep, Jet Lee. Yes, sir. I know my TV people. Absolutely. <laughs> um, I got another question for you. I'm huge on jumps. I mean, I know teams that don't do any jumps. And uh, what do you guys, what's your thought on jumps? Because I believe a lot of jumps here. So, uh, again, I'll start off with this, and I'll let, I'll let Wade take over on. But I, I, we stick to the two, two series of jumps 40, 40 times per, per set every week. It don't it don't matter who you are, where you're from, whatever. You're 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 doing 40 jumps twice a week, and we do all kinds of different variations of them. Uh, Wade is in, is responsible for that, but basically what what I tell people is that you know it's something that we've we've heard from you guys quite a bit. It, it's one thing to be strong; it's another to display it. Um, and we we seem to have the most success positioning our jumps directly after uh, our main movements on on lower body days. I think with baseball, it's a lot of like a you know it's a mind game for them. They need to be able to sync that and feel that transfer immediately. So it's a contrast. Yes, absolutely. Um, so they'll go right from their right from their their main movement into their jumps, and uh, you know we've had some. I mean, we have some pretty impressive. Yeah, numbers we'll do there. different variations. Obviously, for baseball, we'll do you know broad jumps, you know lateral broad jumps. You know, uh, single leg lateral jump to a broad that jump. That one's a big one. The single yeah. leg lateral, they stand on one leg, you know, their backside <laughs> leg, they stand, they jump laterally, and mm -hmm. then they and then they explode forward. And, and to me, that's almost one of the most uh, uh, specific variations that a thrower can do because you, you're, you're starting laterally down the mound, you drive yourself down the mound, and then you produce forward power. That You know, you rotate into that. So without, you know, avoiding, avoiding, avoiding the, you know, over-accommodation and over-specialization, we still hit the two most important ranges in my mind of how they must display that strength and that power and you know he's getting really creative with our jumps and the more creative we get with our jumps our squat records and our, our deadlift records are just you know they're falling like crazy it's it's insane they're just breaking records i didn't realize until we started getting athletes in there some very high level athletes how much of a bilateral deficit they have oh i had a sprinter from the olympics this year in the 200 and i put him in our plow swing he was probably 50% as strong with one leg as he has the other. 100%. I cannot believe it. I come from Jamaica, but so everyone's got problems, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if you have a deficit of 7%, you're looking for an injury. Absolutely. If your hamstrings are a minimum of 40%, you're looking for an injury. Absolutely. I had a female athlete that uh, ran for Ohio State and Athletes West, broke world records, oh, all-time world records in the squad. She deadlifted 534 at 163. 
had her hamstring quad. She was 60 hamstring, 40 quad. That's the highest it's ever registered at Ohio State. And, I, and it wasn't a high done. I said, come on down and give me 10 people because like that. That's probably the nature of it. Oh. Yeah, you see a lot of knee injuries. If you have strong hamstrings and quads, you can, I mean, strong hamstrings and calves, you can continue to trade. Absolutely. ACLs, you can just continue. We had a friend in here, Tony Baloney. He had 1150 squad, and he actually squad 1170, and, but went over backwards and tore both ACLs. So he set him up for surgery, which I'm not so sure he need. But I saw him raw squat over 800 before he went to surgery. Wow, that's crazy. No gear. <laughs> no gear. He just strong. He just strong. Yeah. But how do you do that with going ACLs? Yeah. Hamstrings. Totally. Back to the the gym, and um, you kind of brought them up. It's key performance indicators. But that's what a, a lot of our machines are, and that's what the deadlift is and Absolutely. the sled. Something as simple as a sled, you can judge how strong someone is by pulling. You can hear for a bilateral defect just by the sound of it. You hear the clinking. Mm -hmm. You you can. You can see if they're quad dominant, hamstring dominant, if they got, if they internally rotated out. I mean, there's a lot of stuff you can do. Uh, what, what is it for you, or do you have any certain exercises that you know if, if they don't excel in this, that there's something right there? Um, the the first one is definitely inverse curl and the sled walking. I mean, when we see the hamstring breakdown, it's unbelievable. We'll put we'll we'll take our girls and our guys. We'll put half their body weight on the sled and try to make them walk upright. And and I mean, Wade's plagued with this. Seeing these kids come in and they just they they can't walk. They're hunched over. They're they're hinged in half. They're drunk walking, knees knocking because they just got no hamstring. They put them in the inverse curl. We put no weight on the on the peg and we just see if they can even decelerate themselves. They're basically bashing their teeth out on the floor. We got to put weight on now just to you know just to protect that. Um, those are the first ones. Then, then you know, we look at we look at their range of motion in their shoulders. That's unbelievable. You know, the first thing we do is put them on. You know, see if they can even bench, pull a, a straight bar down to their chest. But if they can, then we'll go into a bow bar and we'll see like how much how much range of motion they have in the shoulder. Um, and then you know, we do some standardized tests. We do the deadlift because that gives us a great idea of you know what's going on with the hips um, and and if there's you know uh, core weaknesses. And then especially that you know once they get on box squats, that's probably the biggest one. We see these kids get on box squats, and that's pretty much our deciding factor of whether they're going to start in our in our programming triangle. A lot of kids come in and we'll do their, we'll test their squat or their deadlift, and you know he makes a decision. They're just thrown right down on GPP because they have no base whatsoever. You know they, they can't even they can't even hold their their own weight up on their back and walk it out from the rack, much less actually squat with it. And then when they go backwards down into into the box, they crash onto the box. You know every time. So that's a big one. Um, the reverse hyper we'll use, and and that first week we basically put them through. You know, the kids that seem decent enough, they come in and they'll go through a one, a one three week wave. And that's where we really decipher everything. Um, you know, like with Scott, I think, you know, he's one of my baseball guys from college. I had him this summer and he had some pretty impressive, impressive improvements. But a lot of it with him was at first. And I told him this the first three weeks, we're going to learn everything about you. We're going to figure out what's breaking down. I'm going to put you in these ranges of motion that you've been told you shouldn't be in and moving these weights you shouldn't move. And when once we see the breakdown, you know, then we're able to, to fix it. So for us, it's not, you know, we try to do that one day evaluation, you know, where we really like get a, get a snapshot, but it's the first three weeks that tells us everything. When a person comes in, I personally make him use all those machines to evaluate him as well. I don't want him to deadlift or squat, yeah. but not seeing, I mean, if their hamstrings are so yeah, bad or yeah. lower back. They shouldn't even be on But, you know, 80% of our training is on small spatial exercises. You're roughly like that, too? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the, the single joint work is, is huge. Uh, like the, you know, the young intern I told you about, she went from using 35 pounds on the inverse curl to having the pad on the ground in two sets of eight in the Russian leg curl. And Tommy lost some cash over a guy that went from basically 700 in 18 months to 
900 in the deadlift, weighed 340, and he did nine Russian leg curls. No falling down, no pushing up. And I, uh, our coach didn't like her machine, so I have a safety thing. I go, that's why you guys got, I actually put this on tape because I was annoyed with this professional coach thinking that a professional football player is going to get hurt doing this. Well, my boy just did nine Russian leg curls at 340. There's one out of 100 linemen that could do a correct uh, a glute hemorrhage. That's uh, unbelievable. We've been told that by Charles Bentley. One out of 100. And they wonder why they pull hamstrings. I mean, this, this intern we got right here, I mean, he actually, Tom saw him on the inverse curl. He blows that inverse curl up. Like, he, he got on that thing, like, as soon as we got a, got a hold of them, and we, I mean, that's all, I, can, I we can't even get him off the damn thing. And it, it's made a massive difference in his pulling, his squatting, I mean, everything. Um, and he's a, he's a big boy. Like, he, he, can, he can do a decent amount on them inverse curls. And that's, that's the one thing. When we, when we see them get strong on that, it's like, I don't know what it is, but it carries over to everything. And I think you pointed out this morning, Tom, the intent on that. Um, John, there's the hamstrings that work as hip extensors. That's why they freak. Uh, like I said, you come in and I see all kind of, like you said, they're always got these big, athletes got strong legs, they got no glutes or hams, mm -hmm. and low back, and no neck. Yeah. And so when I train them, which I refuse to do anymore, I mean, I, I just, I could close my eyes and know where they were weak. Because they're all trained the same way. Absolutely. The only thing that saves football in America, because they all train bad. If one or two teams train good, they'd all have to switch. Absolutely. In the weight room. Um, I, I want to bring up a point that's a little bit different, but it's about athletes. I mentioned to you today that I had a 70-10 shot putter when I trained him. The, the throw coach didn't want him to do any throws. Absolutely. And I trained a guy a lot, to come up a lot. His name is, uh, well, I won't tell you his name. But he's around 213 um, discus thrower. Same thing. I mean, this guy's, you know, six foot five, squatted like box squat 750. He's... So then they go out to their throw coach, who's an Olympian, gold medalist, and they no no weights, and they do six or seven or eight hundred throws. And I would talk to them, and say, "How's your throws?" And they go, "They suck." I realized way back then, a big disconnect. You know, all throws, no weights. Uh, a fellow's coming right now in two weeks, next week, seventy-four foot shot putter, and so what happens? And you know, you go all the weight training, then you get in a season, seventy-four foot. As the season goes on, they cut the weights. Ends up 71 foot, but they're not even smart enough to figure this out. Figure it out, absolutely. I did the same thing years ago, prior to 1982. I couldn't understand we break all these weights in the gym and go to meet. You know, it was well, one was hit or miss, but sometimes my buddy would be going backwards. Mm -hmm. Couldn't figure it out because we lost all of our volume. Absolutely. And, right. and you know, it's nothing as bad as what they were. They didn't do any weights well, for a period of time. Any throwing. Well, and that's us. I mean, again, back to the whole concept, baseball is a year-round sport. And I know, I know I use that reference a lot, but that's really the, 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 the population that we're in. And what I, I tell them like this, I'm like, look, if I get you strong and violent and explosive and then you, you take time off throwing, for one, you're, you're going to lose some mechanical you know, development. You exactly, right? So your body changes. The range of motion that you move through change. The angles that you're performing change, right? We, we, we're big. We're like, look, don't stop seeing your pitching guy. Don't stop playing, you know, practicing. Don't stop throwing the ball. Don't stop swinging the bat. First, it's going to help you mitigate these changes in power and explosiveness and, and speeds that your hips travel at because baseball is one of these sports with all the actual rotation, axial rotation. You know, your hips can get ahead of, of the rest of the body. The shoulders can get behind uh, you know, or vice versa if, if certain areas are getting strong too fast and, and you, don't, you don't actually see that. So we notice our kids who – are literally, you know, they'll see us, then they'll roll over to the other side of our gym and they'll get in the cages and they'll throw and, you know, they'll do stuff like that. Those kids just 
continue to progress. Just progress, 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 progress. They don't. They never lose form. It doesn't affect technique, time, and coordination. They don't overtrain, and we believe it's because now finally their body's actually reaching a level of of loading capacity. You know, their 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 joints and soft tissues are reaching loading capacities that the that the body can you know actually now perform that in a game. You know, a pitcher gets on the mound and have ninety uh, have a ninety throw game, and he's throwing primarily fastballs and, and curveballs. He's not breaking down now because we blew his tricep tendons up and and fixed you know fixed his his scapular rotation he's got rear delts that can you know can decelerate him biceps that can decelerate correctly triceps that are as strong as his decelerators lats that are even you know he's got a he's got a platform to produce that or what we call display your strength now he can display his strength on the mound well, if you look at a little leaguer that goes in a pony league you know or they start even you know, young then they their work capacity goes up and of course they get stronger and their, and their throwing velocity goes up and the bat speed goes up but then all that natural current stops and then they're stuck until they come to someone like you. Mm -hmm. You guys are going to get bigger and less coordinated. Absolutely. And then they're in trouble. Absolutely. You think you guys can run through some of those uh, studies and statistics you you send over? Yeah. Just Just to give people a, a taste of all the theory here we're, we're talking about. All right, so let me see here. Um, so I've got, got quite a few different things pulled up. Um, let's see here. All right, I'll take a picture. Um, for example, I got him signed. And th this kid was with me for five weeks. This may be an anomaly. I, I attribute it to the fact that he was uh, – he had never done any max ever work, big athlete, tons of stored power, never really tapped into it because his whole life he's been told, you know, not to lift weights. Um, he came to me. We squatted and deadlifted. He stayed away from the bench because he, he kind of had a shoulder issue, and I didn't have enough time to kind of get into that. I only had five weeks with him. He was with me 14 hours a day, six days a week for five weeks. Uh, his initial box squat was 425. Uh, he finished at 515. His initial deadlift was 415, and he finished with a 525. Uh, that correlated into a uh, uh, change, a uh, positive change at five mile an hour on his on his fastball, and that is averaging. Um, his tops were much bigger than that. Uh, he's topping at 97. Um, we ended up getting him signed with an independent league team, and he's a, he's back to being a free agent. Baseball is very uh, you know, very uh, political, and so there's changes that happen fast there. One of the correlations we also noticed is as that deadlift and squat raised, uh, we put almost a foot on his broad jump in that five-week period. Um, and again, I think that says says you know volumes at, as to the the concept of displaying your strength and actually being able to activate the central nervous system and then an athlete that's now working at a high level. I mean, his, high, his work capacity was insane. I mean, the kid was with us, again, 14 hours a, a week, two, you know, two hours every single day, two, sometimes two and a half. Um, he did all of his GPP, all of his specialized, blew up the reverse hypers. And we, we actually, at that point, we, we used what we call the, the old ghetto reverse hyper, and it was basically what Louie was doing. Uh, we got, I listened to one of your, one of your, your podcasts. We went and got two uh, two by ten pieces of board, put them over the rack, and uh, we, we we attached rubber bands down on the feet uh, and attached them to the front in front of us with a dumbbell. And we had we had actually accommodating resistance on our on our reverse hypers. That was kind of a crazy experiment. We had a few bad stories with that too. But um, <laughs> uh, but that was how we got our reverse hyper work in. And we we really really tried. I think with with that guy, we really tried to meet his. His, his volume requirements with the reverse hyper, get the poundages correct, because I was pounding this kid in a very short amount of time. Um, another one, and this is a, a, to go to a level down as far as competition, he's a high school athlete. Um, I've been working with him for a year. His initial bench was 125. Uh, he's now at a 185. Initial squat was 155. He's now at a 365, and these are, these are wide 
tr like correct box squats. I mean, you could watch his videos. I can show you. You can verify that. Uh, initial deadlift 255, current deadlift 415. Um, he increased, uh, decreased 60 times. Uh, he was a 785 when I got him, I believe. Yep, 785. He's now at a 72, and this is by a laser. Uh, so there's, you know, there's no, no uh, uh, variance there. And then in his pitching velocity, this is very impressive. He, he came to me throwing 75. Uh, he's now throwing 86. Uh, averaging um, his max effort crow hops across the across the field are basically uh, coming across the field at 90.4 miles an hour and they were coming across the field at night uh, at 80 um, so that's a that's another uh, average there I've got another kid uh, as a college level kid he came to me um, he was with me for four uh, wait seven weeks Ierson right yeah um, and uh, he plays for Charleston Southern University uh, came to us and he was averaging 87 to 89 you know I, when they say averaging and they give me a range I pretty much say look okay you're, you're averaging 87 um, he ended up topping out at 91 and then throwing consistently at 91 and he's he basically four miles an hour uh, uh, faster now and so much the impact the impact was so great on him when he went to back to school because this is a very high level throw he's got phenomenal command he's got an arsenal um, his his coach approached him and was like what in the hell did you do like where did this come from? Well, the base, the football strength coach actually follows you guys. He's a, he's a conjugate guy himself, and now he has just taken over the baseball strength conditioning. And I just got a text from him, and they have a. There were some things I would work on, but there is a a phenomenal layout of a of a conjugate system in baseball now that they're running with their players because he they were sold. Um, we got another kid. Uh, I don't know. We probably won't say his name, but he's up and coming. Um, he's pretty hot stuff, and. Uh, he has increased. He sent me a text. Let me pull that up. Actually, just of his throwing velocities and his hitting velocities. Um, let's see. There he is. So his max bench now is 215. I mean, we didn't even really have a number on this kid when he first started benching. He couldn't even get the bar to his to his chest. Um, he started squatting. It was 255. He just got 407 the other day with Wade. Uh, he started a 260-pound deadlift. He's not four, uh, 463. Um, exit velo is uh, now 106, topping out, consistent 99 to 102. Uh, throwing velocity is 85. Um, his average hitting was 92. And now, again, he was consistent at 92. He's now consistent 99 to 102. Um, and his throwing was 78. And now he's, he's averaging 85. Um, and this kid has been with us for 12 weeks. And I, I should add that he did this, he did this during travel season in the summer. Um, and there were many times where I had to hop on a FaceTime call with this kid and explain to him how to manipulate a variation of conjugate style training at a hotel weight room, um, which I should add, it can be done. We've done that multiple times now. Um, so there's no excuse not to do this when you're traveling. Um, I mean, hell, I could go on for days. I got, let me pull up some of these, our deadlift average. Let's see. So I segmented our deadlift average. Um, and... Our average sumo deadlift across our baseball players at lower levels is now 336. And you're talking, this is, a, this is kids from 14 to, to 18. So You're trying to say <laughs> that as they got stronger, they got much better. So if the system was incorrect and they got much stronger, they would get a lot worse. Without a doubt. But it didn't happen. Without a doubt. And some of these numbers are scary because in the last six weeks with Wade programming, we've gotten very crafty on our squats and our deadlift variations. 
and these kids are pulling and squatting their maxes into heavy bands and I don't even have data on them because we haven't retested on off the floor just off a, off a straight box so I mean we've gotten just un and violently yeah. strong sometimes it, it surprises me even I mean I know how powerful this system is but you know I'm I'm surprised every week with we've kids. Been, we've been surprised too. Yeah. Same thing. I mean, I'm going yeah. like this can't be happening. We yeah. took a kid from 900 in the squat, <clears throat> stuck. Come here, squat 890 meet. Five and a half months later, did 1065. Yeah. I'm, I'm going like this kid's impossible. Yeah, there's things that seem impossible, and yeah. you know, I've seen it every week since I've been there. So. I I think you know some something should be said too. Like I have another example of an athlete. Um, he came to me. He's a catcher. He's he's decently ranked and uh you know we're going through a little bit of recruiting issues because there was a coach that left a left left a college um and you know when that happens everything changes with with the commitments and such but um we had it we had it kind of ran into like a almost a plateau you know even on this system and I, and I didn't know if it was my program what we were doing wrong the problem is there was a hidden deficit in this kid and he happens to be a catcher and he had massively internally rotated hips um and then it took way to come up and after you know he's been doing his very religious to his FRC stuff, and he's seen massive increases in his deadlifts. I mean, he's pulling his maxes. He's one of the guys that's pulling his maxes into what are what are our our, our bands, hundred pound bands, so it's two hundred pounds a band. And we've got this kid on this on this hip work, FRC hip work, and stuff like that, or what you know, as close as we can get to it. And all of a sudden, he's coming in the gym, blasting his records. It's it's so. I think my point there is one little one little change, like one diagnosis, you know, one one I guess successful uh, 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 you know display or, or excuse me, like successfully finding one one kinetic breakdown can just change an athlete completely, uh, massively. Yep. <clears throat> we have a, a throw coach that comes here, and she's a good throw coach, you know, but um, she had problems in her athletes when going to work, and I kept telling her you got to quit throwing them and work on the specific area that you're weak in in mm -hmm. the rotation. Mm -hmm. So she finally did. She put five foot on one jump in her college. Unbelievable. And she she figured it out that you know like you guys are doing. She's out. She's doing an amazing job now. And uh, so once you figured the system out, the sky's the limit. Well, I, I guess this this kind of bring, reminds me of a question. I'd like to hear what John has to say about this. But you know, I I kind of explain it like this because this is how I interpret it. But you know, let's say we have a breakdown in kinetic chain. Um, for instance, one of my throwers, and they have they have like uh, you know ill-conditioned hips or, 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 or a massive hip impingement, you know, I tell them that basically think of it like, you know, a cone, right? And as, as, as we're funneling all this power, you know, that you're creating from ground contact force and pushing out, you go up and now you've got this weak hips and, and terrible low back. The transfer, the, basically the transfer system is shut down. And I don't actually know exactly how that happens, but, I, but basically what I tell them is it's like there's a hole in your funnel and you just, you're, all of your energy, all of your produced power is leaking out of that system. So, you know, I, I guess maybe you could speak on that and, and kind of explain to them how having like a, you know, such a, a defective scapula system or, or a weak upper back or weak hips or tight hips or whatever can, can, you know, erase essentially all the power they're putting out. Yeah, so... Um, I think if we just remove soft tissues and just think about the joint, so if the joint is constrained, it doesn't matter how much force you can produce, you can only produce it in the ranges that it's unconstrained in. Absolutely. And that may not be the optimal ranges for you to do said motor task in. Okay. So the objective is to expand that range Absolutely. so that you can fully display your strength okay. like you guys were discussing. Perfect. Yeah, basically, what, like for sprinters, if your body's like two springs, you got a lower spring from the waist down, but you also have upper spring for your upper body. And if you can't run in the same direction in the lower body, you can't run right. Yeah, so, yeah, so that's one of the things that like I try to do as a therapist is I try to 
expand joint range of motion, which is considered increasing the intrinsic demands of the lifter. Okay. So that's the set of movement capabilities that lifter brings, right? So you got to think about it. Let's say that somebody has 50% joint range of motion. Mm -hmm. They can only use 50% joint range of motion. So all the power that they're using is only in that 50%. Absolutely. Right? Okay. So that's where the conjugate system, you have to look at it both from the athlete and also the work that you're doing. So the intrinsic demands and the extrinsic demands. Absolutely. So you can switch all the exercises you up, you want up, but you're still only gonna have access to that 50%. Absolutely. Thus, you're not really creating the variability that you need, and you're actually, you're, it's kind of like an attractor state okay. where you increase the repetition. Absolutely. So the objective is to expand that. So just yeah. like you would use the conjugate system, uh, and you would use the exercises to expand that individual's variability, mm -hmm. you need to look at it from the same perspective, which is what you guys are already doing by applying FRC principles, stuff like that, to expand what that individual can okay. do Absolutely. so that they're a better match for their demands. So if you increase it to 60%, now they have 10% more different ways that they can do it. Now they have variability to the system. Okay. The body loves variability. Absolutely. Furthermore, if, if you want to talk about decreasing the load uh, the load that's going onto those tissues, now you have access to 10, 10 more percent of those tissues. So it's almost, it's basically safe to say, that like, for, and we've been noticing that trend, right? We, we, we start to fix an issue like impinged hips or a weak low back, and all of a sudden, it's almost like we haven't even actually truly been doing max efforts on max effort day because they're not able to get everything out of their max effort lift. Exactly. So, like, that's one of the things that we do with Seth, right, is the objective is to constantly increase what the individual can do. That means the movement capabilities that they bring because you're always going to be training them with different exercises in the conjugate system to avoid accommodation. Mm -hmm. So you have to avoid accommodation intrinsically and extrinsically. So you have to look at it from a systems perspective. Right. Now, the conjugate system was basically developed through track and field and Olympic weightlifters at the Dynamo Club beginning in 1972. And part of the conjugate system's value is uh, correcting uh, techniques and sport by exactly what you're doing. Absolutely. You're bringing up a weak muscle makes everything else work we get a lot of flack because people are like, oh, we, we don't do any technique work. And I'm like, we do technique every damn day, but it's just not with a light bar with purpose, you know, with no purpose on our technique. It's, it's, we, we fix your technique under heavy loads because that's when you're going to break down. Right. It's great to have technique with a broomstick, but when you got fucking 500 pounds in your back, you know. I'll go through this one group of athletes, I'm going to tell you which ones, but they never want to go over 85%. And I said, you're really, truly only using 85% of your potential. Absolutely. How are you going to ever even get in the 95% range? You've never even done it. Absolutely. If you only hold your breath for 60 seconds all the time and for 200 bucks, if you hold it for, for 10 minutes, you could never do it because yeah. you've never done it. Well, that's like my, my biggest, my first analogy that I give these parents when I talk is when, you're, when, you're, when your kid was learning how to walk and they kept falling over and wobbling at the knees and busting their head and all that, you didn't stop them from walking. You know, the only way you learn how to walk is by walking, falling down, and the body learns the motor patterns and, and, and the, neural, the neural response to make that happen. And even if your weakest kid, you say, came in and maybe could get up 165, first time, how the hell did he do that? He never did exactly. that. Absolutely. <laughs> I've, had, I've seen people deadlift 455 first time. How'd you do it? You never done a deadlift. Yeah, I think Tom said it in the last podcast, too. You know, the objective is to fail and to fail fast because that's feedback. Absolutely. And you, that's the only way that you can learn is by failing and then trying to not make that same mistake again. But if you never fail, uh, like you guys said, baseball, yeah. everything is a failure sport. Absolutely. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's like you have to fail and you have to learn from what caused that fail because it's invaluable feedback. A Absolutely. good coach solves a problem, which creates more problems that you have to solve. Absolutely. And that's how you get to the top.
I think that was a, a good segue to go from what we do into a whole different demographic and how you guys have done, use the same system that we're talking about baseball, powerlifting, MMA, and um, brought it into bodybuilding. And settlement. Congratulations, Pittsburgh and everything. And Thanks. if you got, um, you could kind of explain how this training has really influenced you and the success you've reached. Yeah, it's. Um, what is that? Oh, yeah, I won the North Americans uh, overall winner in Pittsburgh this year until seven days ago. So, yeah, so when we do this, I, me and John started training about a year and three months ago, July of last year, I think. And it's the first time I really ever really deadlifted, and he brought me here, and we started doing banded deadlifts. And um, we started implementing the three-week wave system and deloading, and we'd box squat, regular squat, full range of motion. Um, we do the same thing for chest day. We do uh, incline barbell for three weeks, and every week we'd ramp up our um, our reps, six reps each time. We keep the we would do uh, more like high intensity training, low volume, and then we would um, keep our we would do like a, if we did chest, we would do incline barbell for the first week, sets of eight, and then the next week sets of ten, and sets of twelve, and we always keep like a fly movement in there, higher rep, and we would always do some sort of like stretching movement at the end so we can get you know all ranges of motion, and I really feel like that really developed my chest and shoulders and my legs a lot too. And then seeing him for treatment, I go, I've been going every week for a while and him opening up everything, me be able to train in this full range of motions, I think it's really helped build my physique um, from last year to this year's. I put on around 20 some pounds of stage weight from last May to this September. How, how did that influence or your previous training? Um, to this, what's what's different? Okay, so before John and I started training together, um, the guy I was working with before, he would just say, I want you to lift heavy at the beginning of the workout and just do pump stuff uh, towards the end. So he'd always just have me, he would just have me do that. And you know, with my genetics, I respond well to weight training, but I think once we put a system in place that it took my physique to a different level. So I think that this system's really, it's really done my physique well, so. Yeah, so bodybuilding is totally different, right? Because the objective of bodybuilding is just to build body, so strength doesn't technically matter as much, right? And the reason why we chose to do a higher intensity, lower volume is because Seth's a big man, and uh, the more volume you do, the more you have to recover, and he's already eating a lot of food. So the objective is to create massive stressors really fast. So it's like if you look at any of his training videos, we're basically pushing him as hard as he can go and we're getting that massive stretch, uh, that massive stressor, which that's gonna induce the structural adaptations that we need, and then we're getting out. The difference is, like even when you listen to Dorian Yates uh, talk about his training, which is kind of more of a high intensity, he talks about how he put his foot on the gas probably a little bit too much. So being here at Westside, uh, the three-week wave, obviously, we don't have to talk about it anymore. It works. The one-week deload as a therapist, uh, at work, working with a lot of people, I always see constant repetitive strain injuries. No one backs off the training. You guys have already discussed how functional adaptations occur right now, right? So what we would do is we would ramp up for three weeks, put the pedal to the metal, then we would back off for one week so that, that basically the structural adaptations that we want to create are being created right, but we're not overtraining. Does that make sense? Because the structural adaptations is what he needs. So that deload week is when we would take, we, we're, and deload isn't easy either. You know, you know what I mean? Not, but. Right? <laughs> but, but if you look at, which is funny because like I'm big on uh, Tim Gabbett, who's a loading expert that, uh, that I follow a lot. 
And so what realistically we would do is we would look at the cumulative training. So that three-week wave, we would see how much cumulative effect, and then we would compare that to the acute effect. And so basically one week's building off two week, which is building off that three week. So we're pushing them as hard as you can, and then we're backing off so that all, because when you think about laying down new tissue, there's a lot of metabolic processes that have to occur for that to happen. So he needs that deload. And then furthermore, he's already eaten a lot of food so we don't want them to train with high volume and have to eat even more and more and more yeah, food. burning more calories. So right, because it's, more. yeah, it's like digging a hole. You know, you want more dirt. You're digging a hole every set that you're doing, let's say, figuratively. But we need more dirt that was there before. So the objective is to increase the intensity, ramp it up for three weeks, then deload. So that makes a monthly plan more optimal for you. Yeah, exactly. And your, your process, other than, unlike ours, is uh, the size principle. That's what you're looking for. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, like, that's one of the things that, like, I would hammer Seth. Like, one of the quotes that you say that Mel Seth said is, you want to train maximal, you want to train minimal, you want to train, train optimal. optimal. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and so anytime he would want to do more, just because as a bodybuilder, I mean, like, like, everyone likes to think in linear concepts because it makes sense that way. But we're not a linear system we're a dynamic system so it doesn't function in that way so more doesn't always equate to better right you have to find that that perfect setting you know what i mean and that's what we try to do with uh that that rep range the three-week wave the one-week deload yeah and you know everyone should know that like you, you mentioned it i want to mention again that the high volume training the higher the volume the longer rest you need yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that's one of the things, too, is we would get him rest so that his repetitions were good because we wanted quantity over quality. But it's funny, we took a lot of heat because uh, Tom and, and uh, you and me, we did a podcast and we were talking about box squatting. And Seth posted it because we'd like to rotate three weeks on uh, box squat, one week deload. I think I told you this last week. And then we would go into a full range of motion squat right, just to vary it up. And I was telling you and the other guy that was here that I think the box squatting is actually harder than the full range of motion squat. Well, he posted that on this thing and we're getting blasted, blah, 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 all this other stuff. I tell him, hey, don't worry about these people on the internet. Just stick to the plan, show up at the show. There's nobody that has legs that he has. I mean, it's not even close, Yeah. right? Years ago, you know Jimmy Sykes, he's got the band bar and I trained Jimmy. Yeah. Uh, he wouldn't train me, he can squat 500, he wouldn't, he wouldn't uh, Mr. Uh, OSU, on 600 he went Mr. Ohio. He ended up squatting 733, and he was uh, Mr. USA, and and 35th in Mr. Americas. The stronger he got, and he's all he trained exactly like us. Actually, wider. He's wide. I mean, he was a flexible. He's a gymnast. Exactly. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that point up, brother. You know what? You going back to the 40s, Mr. Americas were doing box squats in the 1940s. I know this is not 1940. Yeah. Those men were built rugged. Too many guys today can't get any muscle in their thing. Yeah, we'll see. And the other thing, too, that I saw a lot, especially when I watched Seth compete, is Seth has shape to his legs because he's not sitting in a leg press, you know what I mean, just knee extending weight up. And that's another thing that he would get frustrated about is, you know, I'd always tell him, drive your hips, drive your hips, right, all this other stuff. And uh, you even did, you even posted a, a video for like, there was this like online challenge. Yeah. Yeah. It was like, so it, was like it was like, it was like, what is it? Beginning of the year. 
Yeah. Yeah, the beginning of the year, they had this squat challenge, and it was like 315 for as many reps as possible. And so, you know, I think I did 21 with 315, like ass to grass every single rep. And then somebody, some couple guys beat me. They did like 30 or 28 or whatever. They're like, well, Seth Shaw has the most impressive squat, but he's not going to win. He's, he's not going to win this contest. But I'm like, well, I did full range of motion squats. All these other guys did half rep squats. So you, you're going to pick the guy that did half rep squats but did a few more reps. It doesn't make it, any sense. And the funny part is technically you really didn't squat until we started, right? But you learned how to squat by using a box squat. Yeah. Right? Does that make sense? Yeah. The Do you think um, with the, the variety of the system that allows you to get a lot more out of it than more of that of a linear structure? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the biggest thing, like – like people like the linear thought process, like progressive overload is gonna work, but it just doesn't work that way. Like the story of Milos is not real. Like that didn't happen. You know what I mean? People still talk about it, it didn't happen. Progressive overload is not great. It's never been great. It doesn't work. It gets you injury, right? He had right? to keep buying a smaller calf. Right, yeah, exactly. And so, and so like we try to add the variability to the system by switching up the exercises uh, rep ranges, all that other stuff, because you just don't want to accommodate. And in bodybuilding, it's really easy, like these guys were saying earlier, to, to do the exercises that you, you're best at, right? But you have to do the exercises that, like in bodybuilding, where you don't have the muscle tissue, right? Which is the ones that you don't want to do. And two, when we train, we don't even use like super heavy loads. Like you see these guys squatting 500 pounds and their legs are three inches smaller than mine because I'm using full range and they're not. Yeah, and so like we only squatted what about three fifteen last year, maybe three times. Just we just stick with the optimal weights, and it, it just works. If I may, if all you bodybuilders out there, if you think of what they're saying, just imagine you're lucky because you came into a gym with an immense amount of different type of equipment. It was all developed by bodybuilders. Yeah. He, where did easy curl bar come from? You know. Yeah. Right. Hey, where did Scott bench come from? Yeah. Where did Scott? bench come from all these things come from the necessity of a bodybuilder to probably do it in better ways become bigger right so it was all laid out for them but then so it makes it look too simple to them yeah so you don't incorporate any max effort style movements we, uh we've done like we we would do like dynamic work but not really max effort just because like when we first started working like because i work on him and i assessed him he didn't have full functioning joints and like as much as he wanted to continue to go up and wait, I kind of put the brakes on it because like bodybuilding is, it's it's just about uh, how you look, not how you can actually function. You know what I mean? And so like the rate of force development, we kept speed work in the entire time. And I mean, that's the one thing is speed work is phenomenal. Yeah, because it made like, your bench press like. Oh, dude. Yeah, I mean, so quit. when you get under the bar, I mean, you're just, I don't even know how to describe it. It feels like it's an empty bar. You know what I mean? So. The volume of speed work or dynamic, the dynamic method can be so high where max effort is very, very low. Right, yeah. And that body bunch right up a bodybuilder's, uh, uh, you know, angle. Yeah. To, to, to handle the volume. Yeah, so now that, so that you got to figure, I mean, you've technically been squatting for about, because, I mean, before year, right? you just live on a leg press, quad yeah. extensions. Yeah, because my legs uh, grew, grew with just doing leg press, but they really developed more once I got the full range of motion and we started doing squats and Right. So this whole prep was just through treatment, acquire more range of motion, uh, and then train that range of motion in the gym. And is there not a, 
Uh, I, I have no idea. But is there not a, an area where you're going to plateau, where you're going to have to increase the stimulus to get to another level? Oh, no, that's that's coming. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so because... <laughs> I talked about that yesterday. Yeah, so, so just because he didn't really do the compound movements, that's kind of the crazy part if you look at it. You know, how many squat workouts he actually had where he was performing good repetitions, it actually wasn't that many, you know, over the course of a year, right? And we actually really, other than, like, uh, speed deadlifts, we really didn't pull deadlifts, and he was able to put the size on that he has. So we're kind of, like, it's it's optimal. Well, we're still getting results from this. We're just kind of, like, ride it out. Then as soon as he starts to plateau, that's when we'll have to, We'll have to start to change up the stimuluses, whether it's increase them, change the actual stimulus, whatever it is. Try doing some high pin rack pulls where you can handle seven, eight hundred pounds. Yeah, because I mean, he does need to get more thickness. That's yeah. the one thing yeah, that I really lack is the thickness. And what we did bring up my hamstrings and glutes a lot from in my back from last year. So because we did we did the inverse glade curl and we yeah. did a tons of reverse hypers and those band of deadlifts. We did that every Sunday for months and months and months. Right. It sounds like too that you're building a base. You're building the, the start of a solid foundation and not going straight into it, which is a lot of people, I think, they forget that you need the fundamentals before you get to the next level. How does this differ from what you guys did with Jimmy and those guys? I think, like I mentioned, he started with 500 pound squat and he won Mr. OSU. Time he squat 60, he was Mr. Ohio, which is no easy chore, right? In mm -hmm. the state title. And then he ended up squatting 733 at 212. Was so he it? pulled 660, um, one deadlift in him. In him. And was his, did he do the same accessory work that you guys did, or he? Exactly, did. He, 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 he trained exactly like we did. Actually, at that time in my garage, which is you know a power rack and reverse hybrid, very sparse, and then he would go to gyms as a secondary workout and do basically, um, you know, uh, exercises for uh, size and, um, you know, and uh, yeah, well, hyper for three, but you know, shape. Yeah, yeah. That's what you go do to the extent. I didn't have it like grueling like, extension. You know, him, it's hard to get this guy to do leg extensions. Yeah. He said, no one can do a leg extension standing up. Yeah. But if they those quads, all these people think those quads are so damn important, but then go out the next day and pull him. Well, the quads are actually. That's the one thing about the, the quads are important in bodybuilding. Yeah, well, so, that, yeah. so that's the reason why we do the. <laughs> I do the leg extensions with them, but before, before him, I hadn't done leg extensions and. I don't even know how long, so yeah. it's like it's it's the part of the workout I dread, but I do it. <laughs> I think you brought up a point about how you talk about Jimmy Seitzer. He go to every different gym for different angle leg presses, and that's where he got a little difference, makes a uh, a big change on the body. I said, you know, he would always do that, and never agreed on anything, but actually we were agreeing on the very same thing. Small, you know, small differences make big differences. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you tell me, oh, but this leg curl, this leg extension is three, in, three, in, or three degrees different. I'm going, yeah, so what? Yep. Why, you know what? All you got to do is turn your feet different or turn your hands different, and the muscles work completely different. Oh, yeah. Move them in and out. We saw it on the inverse curl oh, uh, today. Oh, <laughs> Absolutely. That was we put that, <coughs> we put that angle up. We put the we move the foot rollers. Feel much higher. Put your feet underneath the rollers. We went, we went, we went up. Or just raise the way up. Raise, raise the way up. Yeah. Big difference. Do you guys do a lot of stuff for joint work, for joint integrity, and then for joint development? Yeah, so, uh, I mean, every week I'm working on them. So, I mean, we're doing high-level isometrics. And, I mean, that's the one thing that, like, a lot of a lot of 
bodybuilders don't understand is they'll be like, man, I can't contract this, I can't use this. Well, probably because that joint doesn't have the range of motion. So he kind of hated me for it because we were doing like, you know, to try to get external rotation, we're doing high level yielding isometrics so that when he gets in his back double bicep, everything's striated, right? Because that's one of the things is, you know, he still has a lot of tissue he can put on his frame, especially from thickness, which is probably when we'll start to use max effort work, the rack pins, like you were saying, right? But that was one of the things when you looked at him is he was able to, you know, have really good scapular thoracic rhythm. So he was able to come out full external rotation. And as big as he already is, you just see him continuing to go out. You know, if you recall your anterior medial hip joint capsule, remember the first time I got in there and I'm like, this is why you can't train your adductors. This isn't why you're getting your glutes. Yeah. And you remember. And it was really bad. But then when we, the next day, the, two days later, when we did the leg training, the pump and the, the pump that I got, I could use less weight and I could really contract that muscle. And I see a lot of these guys, they'll do the adductor machine and they'll put the whole stack on there and then put another pin and put all this weight on there. I'm like, there's no way you guys are using your adductors to move this weight. I'm using 140 and you're using the stack plus weight. And I'm like, my legs are way bigger than yours. What, what is bodybuilding on a stage but a series of isometric contractions? Yeah, exactly. And so that's the funny, it's, a, it's basically like, if you look at this rotation, it's a yielding isometric. So that's what we did, right? Is we knew that we had to get as much of his lat to pop out and as much rotation as he pops out. So if you look at his front double bicep, so he was hating it because we're doing it so much, he's cramping, right? But it's like, that's what enabled him to fully come up and actually rotate and show the tissue he has. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that you're bodybuilding and they're baseball players and they do isometric. You do the hopping method, Rick. From one pin to another. Absolutely. Yeah. It's almost a lost art. Isometrics is a lost art. I, I think I think it's so simple and it works so well that people just yeah. yeah I mean people just people like uh, uh, people like complex stuff that's like hard to understand. A cool a cool Instagram video. Yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> when, <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, you look at our Instagram. It's nothing but. And people are like, what the hell are they even doing? Yeah, yeah. you're just, and it's just getting better yeah. at the stuff that actually matters. Yeah, absolutely. It does no good to be strong in the wrong exercise. You brought up a thing about cramping, and I remember you said you used to get some of your best squats when you're, because your back was cramping because you'd um, have a maximum contraction. Well, when I would squat, we squat a lot faster. I mean, I did 435 and three set of chain for 12 doubles every 20 seconds. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> and I about died doing this. But my back was so cramped right down my I say you should cram down your rectus down into your hips. I could be dead, brain dead, which I almost am. But all the I think those muscles know what to do, they just automatically do it. Right. Yeah, so I had no oxygen. It took me about five minutes outside gagging, telling me something somebody almost died once. And um, so I asked Dr. Romanoff how I was able to do the twelfth set just as explosive as the first. And he said, You only need oxygen to recover. And all these guys out there, you were back to running, and you got run for miles, sorry. Uh, and and they, they get built a pace. As soon as you go ahead and do it, they have no pace, just like Travis Clark, right, Tommy? Yeah. And I tell coaches this, why is a 100 and 200-meter sprinter running a mile? It says, if they would only read a book, please read a book. Let's get back to bodybuilding. <laughs> <laughs> How does – do you guys have to do any, like, GPP? How does that – because uh, you, you have to be in shape to do to keep going the training sessions you guys do. Yeah, I mean, I would say there is a, a level of GPP, but part of the problem is, like, when he's in his prep and you're trying to literally get all your body fat off, like, I mean, it's just miserable. So yeah. it's like you have so little energy 
that like our last three weeks, right? Last three weeks. We didn't squat at all, did we? We didn't squat at all because, I mean, he's eating so little food. He's doing his cardio. And so, I mean, what we're trying to do is we were basically just trying to figure out exercises to get the fibers that we couldn't get on a squat. That's all we were trying to do so that he could still get good contractions in his legs. It was still a good stimulus. But because he wasn't eating enough carbs or anything like that, I mean, he can't get a pump. He's just flat. He doesn't really, I mean, you, did you want to train? What type no, of no, I, I like to train a little bit. I just didn't want to do that cardio, man. <laughs> An hour and a half of cardio every day sucks. What type of rest periods do you normally have in uh, we, when we do squats, it's just like you go, I go. You know, as you go, I go. So it's kind, of, it's pretty quick, and you get pretty winded. I, I was pushing him the last two weeks, and he's supposed to be pushing me. I'm like, you all right, man? He's like, yeah, so, it's easy. Like, no, yeah, so, easy. So, so we're doing box squats, and like I always, I like to go back to the free weight squats because you get stretch reflex. To me, it's just it's it feels easier, right? But when you go down onto that box, you maintain that tension, and you come out. It's just harder. And uh, he wanted to pre-fatigue our legs before we went in for our last set of, our last three sets of twelve. I remember, I remember we were getting off that machine. I'm like, man, it's gonna be rough. Yeah. I did my first was. set of box squats, and I was like, I could barely breathe. He's like, man, are you okay? I'm like, yeah, it was easy. And then, <laughs> you know what I mean? Because I didn't want to like mess with his mentality. I still wanted to push him, but. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that last set, he was pretty much pushing me from like the sixth breath on. Yeah, it was hard. <laughs> do, do you guys prefer? I mean, the, the age-old question, but we all know about the Smith machines to free bar. Do you prefer free bar? We didn't. You haven't used a Smith. I think the only time we used a Smith machine, we did rack chins like twice, and we haven't really uh, used a Smith machine at all. Yeah, so we were more using it as like a pull-up, but yeah. we, we don't actually use the, the Smith machine. And do you do it out like compounds between specific? Because we, we try to isolate. You guys isolate? Yeah, we do a lot of isolation work, and then... Like I said, just to keep the volume down because so he doesn't have to eat as much food because, I mean, he eats a ton of food right now. We try to pick, like, one main movement and then make that, like, a massive stressor. So that's the reason why it's, like, as soon as, I, as, soon as he gets done, I try to get back in there to really push him so that, I mean, he's uncomfortable doing it, but he can still do it. Yeah. One of the main differences between bodybuilding is a lot of slower eccentric work compared to strength athletes who do fast eccentric. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because I mean, the eccentrics obviously build the tissue. You know, I see. Yeah. I just saw it on TV. I was watching some football guys. I was one of those stupid shows, uh, Hard Knocks, and Lord knows where. He <laughs> <laughs> got a guy who was a massive one, 135, rolling real slow and pressing up. And you know, everybody does depth jumps. I ordered the greatest thing since sliced bread. We were 9.8 meters per second. Yeah, that's the speed of acceleration of gravity on Earth. And they know they work. Then why would you lower anything slow? As all you coaches out there, I just want you to think about that and tell me why you would lower it slow if depth jumps work. And a lot of people are, are so un unfamiliar with depth jumps. You know, as depth jumps get higher and higher, uh, they go from building explosive strength to absolute strength. Because in landing, when you land, the automatization phase is longer, so it builds absolute strength. And at that point, it starts to get dangerous. We got a call from a friend of ours, right, Tommy? And, um, Said his knees and back was killing him. That's what he's doing. He's doing death jumps. I think he said, was it six foot? Six foot. Six foot. Yeah. And this kid's nothing but skin and bones. I think, I think so we think we found your problem. Yeah. <laughs> People really don't understand physics. Like, no. like, but just in general, uh, I always say that if you were an athlete or 
and a coach, you should have, if you had a battery for a person for your central nervous system, they could see it. They'd be like, okay. And then if you had a force meter for every time you'd run and walk and jump, they'd be like, okay. But because they don't see it, so they don't see it, they assume it doesn't happen. They're like, no. And when you assume, it's like you just—it's an the assumption. Forces yeah. Sprinting. These coaches, oh. they don't see yeah. all that force each step they're putting in the ground. That's Scott. We, we did a calculation on Scott's first conditioning day back to school. We we, we calculated his, his volumes. Um, this. Scott, I'll say what I said again, but Scott, I mean, we, we got him. He sends me a text on his first conditioning day, and we calculated the volume. We roughly calculated the volume on, on all of his sprint work and, and his two-mile max effort run, you know, for his conditioning <laughs> test. He did, like, 300,000 pounds of volume in, in, in like, a two-hour workout, you right. know. But and it took me a page to calculate that. But, like, that's we'll commonly do that. I'll ca- like, I've calculated for a parent. I, I sat, sat there and I don't know if anybody's ever done a physics equation, but I did a physics equation on a full page of paper to explain to them the concept that uh, you know they're gonna they're gonna produce more force with a heavier weight <laughs> than than a lighter weight. It took me a full page to explain that. So you know you do have to have that understanding, that basis of how weight is moved through space. It's a geometric geometric atmosphere. There's gravity. Like we we have 26 people that squat at least 1,000 pounds. All right, they do 12,000 pounds of work to squat. That and it takes him approximately a half an hour. Time to be warm up to get there. He takes a down sprinter like Bolt. He covers the track in only 41 strides, but it's over a thousand pounds a step. That's 41,000 pounds less than 10 seconds. And you worry about lifting weights. This is like you, what you did, you calculate that amount of weight. I mean, that's it's unbelievable for a, a kid, you know, probably can squat 500. Um, yeah, it's, it's, they can't see it. They can't see, that's the problem. They but you said course. they know anything about physics. No, and that's why the first book you give us what, it was a basic physics they book. They need to call Mr. Fig Newton figure <laughs> that out. <laughs> but see, and that's the thing. We have people out there, who name names, but they're saying that um, force equals mass times acceleration is a conjugate thing. No, it's a physics thing. <laughs> like, it's just, it's physics. Like, it's nobody else. Like, you can't, you can't argue with these people because they're physicists. I mean, that's... That's just it. Just read a goddamn book, and then just if if you drop like if you drop an egg, it's gonna smash in the ground. Why is that? And then learn about deformation. Like all all these things are, and you're supposed to be a fucking strength coach. Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> well, we see it. Like I mean, I don't think you have a double deformation. I'll see him bring up force equals mass times acceleration. They don't even know how to cal- correctly calculate mass. You know what I mean? They can't figure out that oh, there's newtons that play into this, and you have you have to calculate the speed of acceleration, which is per second per second, not just you know. So like oh, my bar speed's 0.8 meters per second, and they just run off that. Well, that's not acceleration. You have to understand that you started at zero, and you have to figure out how fast you 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 accelerate over that yeah, given distance. That. Yeah. You know what I mean? And no one understands that that's how you run these equations. So I'll see them go on on some of the stuff we post or some of the stuff you guys post, and they'll you know some some nerd box and freaking you know. You know, a, a bro in, 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 in his second year physics class in college is like, oh, well, force times mass acceleration doesn't, you know, doesn't that play over in the weight room. You can't even do the fucking equation correctly. So, you know, it, it, I think there's a, a very big misconception on how in-depth they need to get with their understanding of how weights move through space and, and the forces that are produced because of that. And that's something that I've really, when I hired him, that's what I've dived into is physics. Hey. Um, yep. So it, it, I... That supports the box squats. Because the nine and a half athletes, ball players, I never ran them. They got larger, they jumped higher, I knew they could run faster, and they all did. Absolutely. It's, it's a momentum impulse, there's a formula. And I would rather make measure that if I had to know it than have a guy jump off a box until he gets shin fractures. And I've seen Absolutely. it happen with all my girls. 
10 200s. This is 18 year old girl, first year of college, and then jumped off 36 inch boxes and got chin fractures. This is something that I just said I'm going to, and you're a track coach. I said, if that stuff works, why don't the track coach do it with you? Yeah. Because you can't buy it in the fucking app store. That's the problem. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. what they want. <laughs> I don't think people know this, but a lot of the people that write in and call in here are mathematicians and physicists because they're absolutely enthralled by this because it all makes right. perfect sense to them. Absolutely. Because why? Because they get... Because there's laws. Like, they're not laws. Like, theories, theories, but laws. Yeah. There's laws of nature. Laws. Like, that's that's a given. Like, <laughs> but when I was... I did seminars of Dr. Sim with uh, Super Game. And then before that, I was reading about kinetic energy. And I go, like, kinetic energy, you know, if, that's, if it's important, which I saw it is... How could I increase kinetic energy? And I did it by bands. Absolutely. Uh, Mr. Sip was going. Mel was going to come here. We thought we could override the goji tendon because with real weights, you know, you guys lift the real weights, you go down and get stuck, right? Have you ever seen anyone that used a lot of bands go down and not, you know? I don't. When's the last time you saw someone miss a squat, Tom? Have you? I mean, how, in the time you've been here, one or two out of the thousands of squats in that gym. Apart from today. Bad day. No, but uh, I mean, no, I'm not talking about these guys. Oh no, we no, didn't no, miss no, no squat. No, 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 they, no, they didn't no. miss a squat. No, no. I just fuck with you. But very rare because, well, once once you keep to the math, math does not fucking lie. Right. Once you keep to the math, you're a okay. Yeah, but absolutely. once you st start getting out and you think you're smarter than math, I don't think so. Oh, you mean when you think you're a human from another planet? Yeah. And science don't apply to me. Yeah, we got that guy. <laughs> well, um, how important is band work for you guys? Yeah, so we, we use accommodating resistance just because, um, um, like he was talking about the Golgi tendon. So basically what happens is, you know, the objective of bodybuilding and in, 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 from a training perspective, in my opinion, is to maximally recruit and maximally fatigue motor units, right? And so if you use bands and the resistance accommodates, you uh, uh, recruit much more motor units, thus you're fatiguing much more motor units. And then furthermore, we do yielding eccentrics. We do, when he fails concentrically, we'll do eccentrics, all that stuff, just to try to, like, if, if you break it down, like the thought process is we just want to have one or two major stressors that are gonna induce all the adaptations that we need. So we use bands all the time. Yeah, triceps, like, bag chest like like everything i mean you get a better contraction because you have more motor units that are active you know what i mean especially at that end range and that end range is what's important for him because when you're going to contract your tissues and show them on stage you're at end range so the objective is to train that actual end range and to have more the most load at that end range same for them it's about all about the release right the release, absolutely yeah. point of contact with the ball and swing the bat and the release and that's that's why i think I, I didn't talk about that, but we, Speed Day is, has a massive correlation for us. Um, you gotta get fucking more microphones. Yeah. For us, you know, our speed days have a massive correlation because it is, it, it's, it's 100%. It, it's increasing the rate of force development, and I believe what you, you know, what you guys thought about it, it overriding the Golgi tendon because essentially, when I, when I take a kid, and even if we do like a, a we do speed pulls on the day, for whatever reason. It, it triggers his central nervous system so that when he swings the bat, he accelerates all the way through. So, you know, under, 
what the problem is is what people don't understand is when you swing a bat, all of the all of the force development, all, all of the, like the maximum amount of force development comes from you beginning the, you know that movement. Once you start the bat, you know, and then an object in motion stays in motion, it becomes much easier to swing the bat. So you naturally decelerate. And you talk about this a bit, quite a quite a lot about when at the top of the squat you decelerate without bands, without band tension. Well, when we apply this to these kids, it makes them accelerate through their throws. It makes them accelerate through their swing. Um, and and it's, it has to be because of that reason, because they're increasing their rate of force development. Um, so that speed day is, is huge for us, and it's the end range, but just like with you guys. Yeah, and, and realistically, what I think happens is, uh, like anyone like, like me, because I work a lot with the central nervous system in, in treatment, the functional adaptations uh, that occur, occur instantaneous. Whether it's decreasing tone and that individual acquiring more active joint range of motion, whatever it is. So realistically, I think what is occurring is the central nervous system has learned that it has to fire through the entire range of motion and it can't decelerate. So then when you remove that band, it still ha that adaptation is still oh, there. Right. And so when you that's the reason why you have to use bands. Right, because the functional adaptation is immediate, just like it would be in treatment. Whenever you see uh, an individual increase uh, active joint range of motion, it is a functional adaptation. There has not been enough time for structural adaptation to be induced. Absolutely. Right, and so when you when you think about that from the band perspective, the same thing is happening. Instead of the body, the central nervous system. Uh, because it fires based off of the size principle, instead of it starting to downregulate motor units, it's having to fire more. And so when you remove the bands and you go back to your max effort, whatever it is, the function that functional adaptation is still there. Absolutely. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So that's the reason why the central nervous system is basically, if you want to use the word fire, whatever it is, fires harder all the way through said range of motion. If that wasn't true, our band training wouldn't work. Exactly. And then furthermore, too, you and I have discussed this even with Tom in detail about in bodybuilding because Tom asked if we use bands. We use bands because uh, the bands train the connective tissue. And in bodybuilding, the main objective is to hypertrophy connective tissue or hypertrophy uh, muscle tissue. And so what you see a lot of is it, it kind of the adaptations don't occur in balance, meaning muscles get bigger, connective tissue load, uh, capacity load doesn't increase equally. So what we do is we use the bands to make sure that not only do we get the benefits we just discussed about the central nervous system, but also because we want to get the, the uh, because like on the eccentric work that we're doing, it's violent, right? Because we're really trying to put the load into the connective tissue because we already know that we're trying to specifically build tissue, but that tissue is muscle, not connective tissue. And that's the reason why I think you see so many tendinopathy issues in bodybuilding. It's always the joint, and it's always the connective tissue they have an issue with. It's never their muscles. That's the same in baseball. It's the exact same. All their all their injuries is soft tissue issues, connective tissue, and I mean it, that's changed with us. And bands work like um, soft tissue. It stretches and contracts. Absolutely. Very natural. Yeah, Absolutely. correct. And so I mean that's how we use the yeah. bands, especially for high reps. The weights do not deload on the way down. You know, it's no. hard to have a perfect weight in the bottom, perfect weight at top. But by using bands and weights, you can have a perfect weight in the bottom and a perfect, perfect weight at the top. top. Absolutely. I think what a lot of people screw up on, too, is they assume that joints and muscles are trained the same. The same set, the same ref. They don't understand the, the blood flow and how joints have poor blood flow. That's why we do thousands of reps a week on our joints. Absolutely. And I think, and, and that's why when you came here, you couldn't believe we, had, we didn't have that many joint problems. Why? Because we live... They put bands on everything. 
we put bands on a ski earth and we put, we put bands on too much stuff but bands are hugely important and uh, back to the the virtual force effect and everything that, that you guys came up with it's all hugely important right. like, and it's a force that that's there to, but not recognize it mm-hmm. yeah you could shoot yourself down with a 700 pound of band yep. you know plus weight yeah. very very accurate too our our, our circumaxials are so accurate it's unbelievable yeah. i'll give you one example <coughs> aj roberts with band 700 pound of band he made 510 pound of weight that's 1210 in a certain that was during the same cycle in the circumax phase he made 740 weight 440 band 1180 in that meet he squatted 1205 but you can look right behind you and as you see weights go up gradually band shrinkage goes down it's within two percent basically mm-hmm. from eight to twelve um, it has to and i've got over what you just did the charge i got almost all, probably 88 people over 800. yeah and then you got 24. 26 i think it is over eight i mean and deadlift now oh yeah yeah over 800. Um, seven women pull over five the uh but uh, again back to bands we have uh pro pitchers who take mini bands with them Yep. That's really do now. And, and that's we had like 10 kids going to buy, <laughs> yeah. buy a full yeah. set of West Side bands because they're like, well, I know I can band up a deadlift. I know I can well, band and, up a and squat. And they'll do a contrast before they go pitch. Yep. Or they'll bring it in to keep their joints uh-huh. always warm. Yep. Yeah. That's what, I think that's what's crazy. Again, against this unforeseen force, when you're throwing, <laughs> inside, when you throw, when you pitch, there is so much catastrophic stuff going on that your body yeah they have no with. idea what they're doing to these kids when they throw that max effort five ounce ball they think oh it's five ounces you know and then they and they look at us when we when we move in we're moving loads you know heavy loads on the bench and stuff and my kids sh- shoulders are finally you know articulating correctly and healthy full range of motion you know and then they they leave and then they they can't do the system or they're not allowed to do the system whatever it may be and then their joint pain comes back scott i mean maybe you should talk about that a little bit like with your bicep you know we were able to fix his bicep and have him doing long toss uh, and he left after what was it three weeks in, and the bicep pain is back. And I think that's something he wanted to talk with John at some point about. But you know, this volume of work on his single joints had to go down because he didn't have the time. It was more you know oxidative, oxidative training, conditioning at school, and we you know we didn't we didn't get to build up the the, the soft tissues in the elbows, shoulders, et cetera, et cetera. And now he's stuck with this again. So how long did it take? Three weeks. Yeah, roughly three, three weeks. And, and like uh, JJ pretty much nailed it on the head when he t- talked about the oxidation. I mean, he mentioned earlier about the 300,000 pounds of volume of running I did just on the first conditioning day. And uh, very soon after, I mean, downhill. And uh, Is this for baseball? Yes, sir. And I, I was kind of hoping you could touch on, uh, you know, what would you say to a, a coach who doesn't have a lot of equipment, doesn't have a, a lot of knowledge, but who has run their, their guys into the ground, you know, uh, what would you say to that? And how, how important is it to, to uh, have a, you know, a great base as opposed to just running as a default because they don't know what to yeah, do? They make up a lack of knowledge for running. Without a plan, you plan to fail. And if you only follow what we say, a 400 squatter, you know, without the, of the bands, that's 400 pounds of work. Every 50 pounds you run to squat is six more hundred pounds of volume. This is all laid out for you. And on top of that, the reverse hyper volume down in the low back and hamstrings is four times that of your squat volume. Now, if you follow this and you do our speed poles, you're going to lay a base and you will never over or under train. Absolutely. And they just, if they would just check my stuff out. You know, I read, I write books because people don't read books. And I read a lot of books. 
and I put all this information together, I quote all the authors, I was smart enough to use it. Now I've said this before, a guy was said one time that I didn't invent change of bands. I said, that's right, and I didn't invent toilet paper, but I was smart enough to use Absolutely. it. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> now, too many coaches think more is better, and more is not better. It's like, John, you said it, in all sports, optimal training is the key. You know, if you got a pitcher, you can't throw fastballs for, yeah. forever, mm -hmm. and you won't be thrown very long. Exactly. Yeah, I just want to touch on something that Tom was saying about how you can't see the force. I think a good example for people listening is you guys were talking earlier about um, doing an overcoming isometric into the pins. And it's like even though there's no motion and you don't technically see a force, the amount of internal force is through the roof. Yeah. Right? You don't, force. Yeah, you don't technically see it per se because they're not exhibiting you it. You can feel it. But right? their central nervous system is ramping up as high as it possibly can to pull through that bar and uh, they have the capacity to stay there. So basically what's happening is that's really good for joints and connective tissue too, because you gotta figure, you know, that force is normally expressed via kinematics, yeah. but there's no bone motion. Yeah. So where does that force go? It Absolutely. goes back into the connective tissue, right? Absolutely. Does that make sense? But I just wanted to do that because Tom was saying about how you can't see the force. Right, and so people don't think it exists, but it's there. Well, with that, to, to lead off that, I mean, and it's something you've talked about quite a bit. You guys, you guys, there's, there's, a, you know, what a, a roughly a 15% range, positive and negative, when you, you when you work in isometric. And one thing that we, I think that we're able to do, we were able to do with Scott right before he left, when his his elbow pain started to leave, his bicep pain started to leave. We were doing pinned pinned benches into into isometrics basically so a pin, a pin a pin press into an isometric basically the Hoffman method for bench and though it seemed like when we started doing more isometric work for 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 even for single joints that the the pain started to to relieve and I'm wondering if it's obviously because of you know n there's no there's no muscular tissues you know sliding now but but we're still developing a soft tissue I, I maybe you could comment on that a little bit yeah so Lou touched on it earlier so in isometrics so there's two mechanical mechanisms that induce uh, inflammation one would be joint shearing uh, so joint shearing would occur if you're doing a bench press so you got to figure that your the joint isn't equally loaded mm -hmm. thus there's going to be joint shearing and that will induce some inflammation uh, the other thing is uh, tissue glide, right? In an isometrics, there's no joint shearing, there's no tissue glide, right? And furthermore, pain is very complex. So you can have an injury and you can have no pain. You can have, it's it just very complex. There's a lot, pain is an output from the brain, mm -hmm. right? And so what isometrics do uh, to a certain extent, because you guys had touched earlier about how when you do an is isometric, it induces structural adaptation 10 to 15 degrees above and below that joint angle. But what it also does is it gives the central nervous system, it, it, it's able to function at that specific range. And if you go to a level where it's not painful, now you have a good input to the central nervous system and you're starting to teach the central nervous system this specific range, 10 to 15 degrees above and below, is actually safe to function in. Absolutely. Thus, you're expanding functionality of that joint, of the tissues articulating to that joint, 10 to 15 degrees above and below. And that's, you know, I, I, point, I want to say one last thing on, on my part is, when people ask me how come our baseball training is baseball specific, even though we're doing the conjugate method, it looks like we're training power lifters, what they don't understand is that we break down the ranges. You know, you might swing the bat a total of 270 degrees, but if you actually go through our programming and, and the system that we've developed off of the conjugate system, we've broken that 270 degrees down into 12 different positional ranges that we train. 
the hip flexion that occurs and the hip rotation, same thing. You can break down our movements and you'll see that we hit all those ranges. Sometimes we hit them in isometrics and sometimes we isolate those, those ranges. And that's why our kids get better at the movements without us doing the movements. But we, we don't over-specialize, we, we avoid accommodation, and we're still able to incite speed, power, strength, velocity-based results, and we don't negatively affect technique, time, and coordination because we're not, we're not fatiguing the athlete with heavy loads in that same movement. Isometrics so. is a tremendous coaching for the coach aspect of learning technique because Absolutely. you're holding a person at a specific joint angle. And so you know, a lot of motions are so fast, coach can't really, you know, and if you're weak in one of those motions, you're getting, what, one hundredth of a second? second in that motion. If you did five exertions of three seconds, it's 15 seconds. Yeah, absolutely. So it's enormous. It's, it's enormous tool. Another thing for pain, pain can be useful too. I remember when um, I f my first or second year here, we had a lifter that always complained their elbows are sore when they're doing extensions. And you're like, they're sore because they're weak. Wouldn't believe you, wouldn't believe you until they started doing them. And the next thing, the pain went away. Why? Because you're eradicating a weakness. Again, it's a very, very uh, useful tool. And I'm talking on fatigue. The, the, one of the biggest questions we get, well, first of all, is for, uh, Mac, uh, for one rep maxes. It's like, why don't you do three or five reps? We're like, well, first, you're building muscle endurance, not one rep, uh, one rep max or maximum strength. But two, well, one rep max are dangerous. Well, go back to fucking math. If you're doing something three times or five times more, you're three times or five times more likely to get injured and you're coasting through the first few uh, reps, but you're going through fatigue. Mm -hmm. So if you're lifting anything in fatigue, what's going to happen? Something's going to give right out. Down. Absolutely. If you take a spoon and you bend it one time, you can't break it. You bend it repeatedly, you'll break it in half. Well, I, also, I might as well note that, and, and I like the term you guys use a lot, it's coaching malpractice. And it, it, parents and athletes and, and, and coaches you know, sport coaches, if you're worried about your kid taking a max effort with a coach and you, you think it's dangerous, the only way it's dangerous is if you're not using the tools properly, you don't have a, a coach that understands biomechanics and human performance and the movement breaks down. You know, if, if your athlete is displaying, you know, what, what John touched on earlier, which is, you know, weak, you know, major dilateral deficits or, 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 or weak ranges or whatever it may be, enough so that they shouldn't be, you know, they shouldn't be taking maxes, well, that's not the system's fault. That's the coach's fault for not recognizing that. That athlete should be put down in, in the general preparedness. You know, he needs to build his base. And, and so what we do, what we tell our parents is, look, my kid will squat in a west side rack, and if I'm unsure of his stability and stuff like that and I feel like he's good enough to squat, well, guess what? He's got, he's got an athlete that's spotting him. He's in a rack that has pins for a fucking reason. That's what pins were made for in a power rack. You coaches that don't use your pins, if your kid are dumping squats because they haven't learned proper form, well, guess what? They should be dumping them on the pins. It, a max effort squat's not dangerous if you got your pins set up, so you dump them. You know, and that's where they, that's what catches it. Deadlift. If you're coaching, if you're coaching an athlete, you got form breakdown, you got pelvic breakdown or low back rounding, lumbar rounding. Well, guess what? If you're the strength coach coaching that session and you're not fucking shutting that kid down, that's not the max effort system that's dangerous. That's the that's the damn malpractice that's dangerous. When an athlete pulls a hamstring, it's on the coach. Absolutely. It comes back down to coaches are dangerous, not the weights. Exactly. exactly right. That's you, you fellows do chair deadlift. 100. percent Absolutely. Uh, that is dumb wonders. It's a monster. Uh, we had a hurler. Work for no mobility in the hips. Chair deadlift fixed all her mobility. I go, how in the hell did I fix her mobility when she got a top track coach? Only thing I run is my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm smart enough to figure an answer. Someone's got a problem. That's what a coach solved their problem. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and and two for um for overhead sports. I mean, they don't want to do overhead presses. They think overhead press is the most dangerous. Like, blasphemy. Yep. Get out of here. You're doing overhead press. Yep. 
It's ridiculous. It's crazy. And it comes back to why? Because, again, you're a coach. If if you're an athlete, and it comes back to what you said, well, function. If you have inadequate function, well, then going overhead is probably going to be dangerous. But if you're a coach and you're good at your job, you're going to go, hey, maybe I should restore function first, then we'll lift weights. But no, they, they, they fucking fuck it up. They screw up the athlete. And again, we got a small, well, we got a big population of strength coaches that people listen to. And the small population people you don't really know about are the guys who have all the information. Absolutely. And um, that's, that's the problem with this generation is because we can go online and get all the information. We don't have to travel. Like when, how did you learn back in the, you went to powerlifting meets, you talked to everyone, you traveled. Well, the strongest guys I knew and the strongest guys I knew. And they're always open for information. Yeah. yeah. Now you got to pay someone 30 bucks. Mm. Yeah. Or uh, online programming. Where you have someone programming for it, them, they're programming another hundred people. In five minutes or whatever, <laughs> yeah. you know, damn thing. <laughs> you know, like I, I know guys may take a basic guy. Oh, I put twenty pounds. I took his bench from one eighty-five to two hundred five. Well, who gives a damn? Because <laughs> yeah. you take him four or five to five hundred. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think. You guys, any more questions? Yeah, thank you, man. You good? I think we can call her out to this podcast. I'd like to thank everyone for coming in, and I think it was one of the most enjoyable ones we've had. Absolutely, one of the longest ones we've had. Awesome. Give me that thirty bucks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs>